And now we can get into the Word. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. I'm entitling this message, The Narrow Door. Seth, last week talked about the mustard seed kingdom. How the kingdom of God is not a cedar tree, big, tall, and mighty. It's a mustard seed. It's small. It appears insignificant, but it gradually, in a sort of subversive way, takes over the garden. We're called to be the mustard seed kingdom. And that teaching that the kingdom of God is a small mustard seed, raises the question, well, just how small is it? Just how narrow is the door into this kingdom? So let's read the passages. We'll we'll look at verses 22 through 30. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. We uh, have seen since chapter 9 that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem to be crucified. And everything we've been reading since then takes place on the way to Jerusalem. So he picks up his travels again. And someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? In the light of this mustard seed teaching you just gave us, in fact, in the light of everything you've been teaching, how the kingdom is so opposite what we thought and how God is not like we thought, if you're right, most of the people on this planet are wrong. So are only a few people going to be saved? It's interesting that the phrase going to be saved in the Greek is the present passive participle, which really should be translated are being saved. Now it can have a future reference, so it's not an inaccurate translation, but the root meaning is are being saved. And so the person's asking, are there only a few that are being saved? And just Lock that in because later on we're going to see that the question about the future can't be separated from the question about the present. To wonder who's going to be saved is to wonder about who is now being saved. Then it goes on. He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Jesus' answer, quite typically... He answers it by not answering it. He doesn't answer the person's question. Typical of Jesus, he turns it around into a personal question. I'm not going to get involved in the theoretical discussion of how many or how few are saved. What you need to be thinking about is, are you making every effort to enter through the narrow door? Note note that the door is narrow. He uses this phrase, make every effort, which is a term used mainly in athletics for someone overcoming obstacles on the way to the prize. And so Jesus is saying, are you confronting and overcoming everything that could possibly keep you from entering into the narrow door of the kingdom? And then he goes on. As always, he tells a story. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. What do you mean, we, you don't know us? We ate and drank with you, and, and, and you taught in our streets. But he'll again reply, I don't know you or where you come from. You're not on the register. You're not part of our family. You, you, you know, I don't even know what city you come from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, from all over the place, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last 
who will be first. Those you think are going to be left out, they're going to be on the inside. And those who you thought were on the inside, the first, they're going to end up being on the outside. They'll be last. Jesus here uses a feast metaphor for the kingdom. It's the most common metaphor for the kingdom throughout the whole Bible. And so this guy's holding a feast. He invites everybody. People come from the north, south, east, and west. They come through the narrow door, but there's a time when the door shuts. And then there are those who are on the outside. And they plead their case. It says here that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Some people think gnashing of teeth denotes being in pain. But if you look at how it's used throughout the Bible, it denotes rage. When people are angry, it says they gnash their teeth. So they're sorry that they're not eating at the feast, they're not in the feast, but they're mainly filled with anger. There's this rebellion and defiance that is there. I'm going to pick this passage apart a little bit, but I want to start by focusing on the question, are there few that are saved? Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, for every person in this auditorium and the many who are podcasting, part of our congregation that way or who are watching television, I pray, Lord, we pray that our minds would be open, our hearts would be open to receive your word, to help think through tough issues in an authentic way, and most importantly, to be confronted and changed by your word. Uh, Bring the kingdom into our hearts and into our lives more now than it was when we came here this morning or when we turned on our iPod or whatever other means we're using to listen. Lord, kingdomize us revolutionize us. Open our eyes and ears in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Is the door narrow and are there few that are going to be saved? Part of me wants to say, that's none of your business. It's none of my business. Because Jesus, in fact, doesn't answer that question. But there's another part of me that thinks, i got to at least address that issue. Because as a matter of fact, that is a burning issue in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, Both inside and outside the church are there few that are saved. Here's what creates the dilemma. It's not really the standard traditional position, but it is a standard evangelical position today that unless you know and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you're lost. You're going to hell. And some interpret hell, I think the Bible teaches that hell is annihilation, others think it's eternal conscious suffering, but either way, the belief is that unless you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, people can know for sure that you're lost, you're going to hell. And then sometimes they add on other beliefs as well, um, unless you believe in the Trinity and believe in my view of inspiration and my view of providence and yada, 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 well then you're not saved. And so there's sort of this salvation package which unless you embrace it and believe it, you're lost. And some add even onto that. I mean, the church I was initially saved in, uh, they believed that unless you're baptized the right way, and most people weren't, by the way, we had the right way, and unless you speak in tongues, and unless you believe exactly what we believe, and unless you live according to our holiness code, you're lost. So most of the people on the planet were going to be lost. We were the only ones who were saved. And that belief completely screwed me up. Um, now, I've recovered. I'm totally healthy and, and sound now, but I was screwed up for a while. I, I was... That wasn't a joke. I'm, I'm the epitome of health, folks. You better believe it. No, listen, it did a number on my head. For one thing, I thought, okay, if, if what saves a person is the content of their theology, then it's up to me to convince everyone of my theology. Duh. 
And, and uh, I, I lived in this fear that on the judgment day, I'd be watching these people who are just ready to go into hell, which we were taught was eternal conscious suffering. So they're going to go for, into pain forever and ever, and it's my fault. And they're going to say, Greg, why were you so busy shopping or watching television that you didn't tell me about your theology? And I didn't want that to happen. And so I became overnight the single most obnoxious person on the planet. I, I, I've always been one to... You know, strive for consistency. What, if my belief implies something, I'll try to live it out. And so I lived in this totally obnoxious mode. You didn't want to be in my high school, my senior year in high school. It was pretty terrible. I went door to door, knocking on doors, trying to convince people uh, that they need to believe this, otherwise they're going to go to hell. And it was catastrophically unsuccessful, mind you. Uh, this is not the way to witness. It wasn't do- done out of the joy of my heart. It wasn't done in a real natural way. It was done because I had guilt on me that I wanted to get rid of. But um, that was sort of the implication of my belief, so it kind of screwed me up on that. It also raised a lot of questions. And I'm just being honest here. If, if in fact, heaven and hell hangs upon the content of your theology, then it seemed to me that heaven and hell pretty much hangs on, on chance. I mean, honestly, um, it's not a coincidence that most people born in Muslim countries end up believing in Islam, and most people born in Hindu countries end up believing in Hinduism. Yeah, there's some exceptions. But, but statistically, you tend to kind of adopt whatever your culture teaches. And so it seemed to me that if heaven and hell depends on the content of your theology, then it's kind of a luck of the draw. If you're born in the right place at the right time, raised in the right family, or come in contact with the right person who, because of their good arguments and personality, persuade you, well, then you're in. But if you happen to be born at the wrong place at the wrong time, raised in the wrong family, or confront the wrong kind of Christian, well, then you're lost. It's kind of a luck of the draw. You might as well believe in the God who sort of predestines some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell, because it comes to pretty much the same thing. And that just struck me as so inconsistent with a God who I was also taught loves everybody. I just, I had trouble putting these things together. I asked the question about babies. What about babies? You know, do, do they all go to hell? Because they don't consciously believe in Jesus Christ. And, and, and what about people who are mentally incapacitated? You know, do they go to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus Christ? And I was told, uh, no, no, they get kind of a free ride, which is not the traditional view of the church, by the way, but that's a different sermon. Uh, this is kind of a new thing that's happened in the last hundred years. They all get a free ride that's ali ali in free for them because they, they couldn't help it. Well, I'm thinking, well, well, how come they get an exception clause but not the people who, who never really had a plausible chance to hear and believe in the gospel? You know, they meet some, some jerk Christian who turns them off to the kingdom and now they're going to go to hell for it. They've got a plausible excuse too. What is it? Is it a curve scale or not? I, I want to know here. I, I couldn't make sense out of that. And then what really screwed me up is I was taught early in my Christian life. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says that God is delaying His second coming because He doesn't want anyone to perish, but He wants all to come to repentance. I thought, so the Lord has taken 2,000 years because he, he wants to give everyone a chance to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the verse seems to say. But it doesn't work that way. In fact, percentage-wise, the longer God waits the greater the percentage of human beings are, who are going to hell if, in fact, you're saved on the basis of the package of theology that you adopted. I mean, just do the math. In fact, I did the math. Here, I'll show you. <laughs> I do all the work for you. That's what they pay me for. Look at it. There is today 153,000 people are going to die. Will it be one of us? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? 153 people are going to die today. If optimistically, and this is very optimistic, 
One out of five are Christian. Because uh, that's about the number of people who answer a poll by saying that they're Christian. Now, if one of five of them are actually true, genuine, sold-out believers, I'd be surprised. But let's just keep it simple. If one out of five are saved, that means today 30,600 people are going to go to heaven. Yay! But 122,400 are going to go to hell. So it follows logically. My brain always screws me up, but I can't help it. But it follows logically that the longer God waits, the more he loses. So what's with this argument that he's waiting to get more? It's not working that way. The longer he waits, in fact, the ratio gets worse and worse and worse. Um, And see, even if that doesn't bother you, it bothers a lot of people like me, and it bothers a lot of people who aren't believers. In fact, this is one of the number one objections that I face when I go to college campuses and do debates and talks and things like that. Um, This obstacle, it, it seems so inconsistent with a God of love Couldn't he have done better? It seems like bad bad pedagogy. The majority of people, vast majority of people are going to be lost. It just doesn't make sense if you're also saying that God is a God who wants everyone to be saved and loves everybody. And so for for many people, it's a deal breaker. So I want to think about this issue. Are there few that are saved? This is my way of making sense out of this. You can have a different way of making sense out of this. Just hear me out. I always give people the permission to be wrong. That's okay. But here's how I process stuff. Just join me in processing stuff. And then at the end of this, I'm going to turn it around and get to the main point that Jesus is getting at in this passage. There's five basic considerations that I think you need to pay attention to to make sense out of this. Okay? We're going to think a lot here. Number one, I think it's an undeniable biblical truth, as unpopular as it is in our hyper-tolerant age, It's an undeniable truth that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. The door, in fact, is narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, singular. There's not many ways, there's one. The way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Uh, Religions can't save you. I know this is very unpopular today. Aren't all religions good and don't they all lead to God? And if you're just sincere, isn't that good enough? Look, at I, I, I've taught world religions for 16 years. I've read all the holy books. There's a lot of good stuff in them. There's a lot of true stuff in them. There's a lot of insightful stuff for them. Wonderful. But they can't save you. All the religious books in the world, all the religious doctrines in the world, all the religious deeds and sacrifices and, and, and works in the world can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Look, think of it like this. Um, all sin, all sin is sin against God, ultimately. We do sin against one another, but ultimately all sin is against God. And the, that means the only one who can forgive us our sins and relieve us of, of the debt that we incur is God. It's kind of like this. If you owe me $1,000 and you can't pay it, the only one who can let you off the hook is me. And you can read all the books on debt relief you want and all the books on financial stewardship you want, and they're probably true and they're probably good, wonderful, but it's not going to reconcile you to me because you owe me a thousand bucks. The only one who can let you off the hook is me. So also, the only one who can let us off the hook in terms of our sin against God is God. And you can read a lot of books with spiritual wisdom and spiritual insight, but they don't reconcile you to God. Only God can reconcile you to God. And he did it by becoming a human being. That human being's name is Jesus Christ and dying on the cross for us. That happened once. 
Jesus is not just one of the great gurus of the universe, the one of the wise people in history. He's not, he's not an archangel sent down from heaven. He's the God uh, of the universe. He's the king of all kings. He took on human flesh and died on the cross to reconcile us to God, and that happened once. Jesus is the forgiveness of God incarnate. And so if you want to be reconciled to God, it has to be through Jesus Christ. Now I know right now some of you are listening to me in the auditorium and iPod and others are, are saying, what a narrow-minded bigot! How intolerant! What a prima donna! Aren't you aware that, that, that we're enlightened these days? And we know that all roads lead to God and all religions lead to God and what's true for you is not true for somebody else and we all have our own truth and yada, 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 yada. I get that all the time at college campuses and other places. Okay, let's, let's think about this for a moment, okay? Put on your thinking caps. Whatever you believe, whatever you believe, is going to be narrow. Because to believe something is to believe that something is this and not that. That's narrow. You're saying everybody else who, who disagrees with you is wrong. There's only one thing that this, this thing holding up my, 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 my sermon notes are, is. It's, it, it, it's a stand. Now, you're free to think it's an aardvark or an orangutan if you want, but it's a stand. Uh, it, it's not a giraffe. It's, it's not the Empire State Building. It's not Mars. It's not a subatomic particle, though it has subatomic particles, of course, but, but it's not itself a subatomic particle. There's an infinity of things it's not, and there's only one thing that it is. And so it's a very narrow belief to think that this is a stand. How narrow? Think of all the other things it could be. Well, yes, it could be, but it's not those. If it was an aardvark, you'd have to feed it, but no one feeds the stand, for example. I'm just being philosophically sophisticated here. <laughs> all beliefs are by definition narrow, including the belief that all roads lead to God. That's a very narrow belief. You could be wrong. In fact, most people throughout history have thought you were wrong. It's a very narrow belief. If you're right, everybody else who disagrees with you is wrong. How narrow, how intolerant, how bigoted of you. It's very much like disagreeing about how to get to Texas. If, if you want to go to Waco, Texas, how do you get there? I might say, well, take 35W South. 35 South. 35W South is a contradiction. Take 35 South. I don't know. Uh, someone else may say, take 94 East. Someone else may say, oh, you guys are so narrow. Don't you know that all roads lead you to Texas if only you're sincere? <laughs> well, maybe... But see, you might be right, you might be wrong. If you're right, we're wrong. But your belief is not more broad-minded than our belief. It's just as narrow. You're making a truth claim. See, folks, what makes a person open-minded or broad-minded is not what they believe. Because all beliefs are, by definition, narrow. What makes a person broad or narrow-minded is why they believe it and how they believe it. If you hold your belief irrationally and in a stubborn way and you're not listening, willing to listen to other people, you're narrow-minded. Even if you're right, you're narrow-minded. You just got lucky and happened to believe the right thing. But if you hold your belief in a rational way and are willing to listen to others and dialogue human to human, you're an open-minded person, even though what you believe and conclude is, like everyone else's belief, narrow. I know that believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is a narrow belief. I'm ruling out Muhammad and, 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 and Lao Tzu and Buddha and all the rest. I appreciate the writings for sure, but I don't think that they're the Savior of the world. I have a narrow belief. But I can tell you why I believe that. And I'm willing to listen to objections. It's been a good part of my life doing that, in fact. And if you want to know why I believe it, you might want to check out the book, Jesus, Lord or Legend. Uh, there's my advertisement for the day. 
Uh, but, but I'm willing to talk about it. See, I think I'm open-minded even though my belief, like your beliefs, are narrow. What makes you broad-minded or narrow-minded is not what you believe, because that's always going to be narrow, but why you believe it and how you believe it. And according to the New Testament, which I have every reason to believe, Jesus is not just one of the many wise people in history, not a spiritual guru, not merely a prophet, not an archangel sent down from heaven, not one of the ascended masters or anything of the sort. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Wise people don't go around saying that. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. Wise people don't go around saying that. He says, I've come from the Father, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Believe on me, you shall be saved. Wise people don't go around saying that. Jesus does. Why? Because he's telling the truth. He is God's presence here on earth, God's forgiveness here on earth. So Jesus, I argue, is the narrow door. There are not many ways. There's only one way. Now, having said that, point number two. Jesus is also called the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Jesus, the man, incarnated that light. But the light of God shines wherever people are willing to receive the light. In fact, John the Baptist said, when he was introducing Jesus into the world in verse 9, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone, he's referring to Jesus Christ here, was coming into the world. The light that gives light to everyone. Whatever light people have, wherever darkness is being dispelled, wherever people are getting any kind of inkling about who God really is and who they really are and what God's up to in history, however they're getting it, that is Jesus Christ. The light is, being, is shining all over the place. He's the Word of God that speaks all over the place. Insofar as anyone has any light, that is Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who said, no one goes to the Father except through me. Now point number three, we need to lock it in. That God wants all to be saved. The passage that I quoted a little bit ago, 2 Peter chapter 3, says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to turn from the self-centered way of living to a God-centered way of living. God's dream is for every human being ever born throughout history to be part of that great feast that will go on forever and ever and ever. That's God's dream. Never has there been born a human being who wasn't part of that dream. God is a God of perfect love and therefore has a perfect love for every single being that he creates. God's hope and dream is for them to be in the kingdom. That's why they were born. Paul one time was having a discussion and he talks about how God, how, how God divided up the nations and, and, and you know, set their times and durations and their spans and things of that sort. And then he says this. God did this, namely working through the nations, so that they, all the peoples of the world, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Kings and military leaders fight and they determine the times and the seasons and the durations of kingdoms, yes. But God is involved in all of that. Yes, even the messiness of wars and the establishing of the nations. But God's goal is very different from the goal of the kings and the military soldiers. God's goal is to, to structure things so that people will develop a hunger for Him and reach out to Him and perhaps insofar as their culture will allow them, even find Him. At all times, in all places, in all situations, through all events, God is at work. 
He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he's working to soften people's hearts, to receive whatever light they have, to turn from their own way of living, and as much as possible to turn to a God-centered way of living, to surrender to him. At all times, he's working to receive, uh, to, to, to get people to receive him and enter into the kingdom. God's dream is for every person to be part of that kingdom. Some of the passages in the Bible that talk about God's dream of having everybody in are so beautiful, they're actually troubling to most of our theologies. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, listen to this, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's an interesting passage, and there's a number of passages that are like this. Now, I have to remember, we always got to read Scripture in balance. You have all these strong warnings about Gehenna, about hell, about judgment, about being lost. Okay? At the same time, this passage is strongly expressing God's heart and God's dream for humanity. Just as Adam's rebellion kind of encompassed all of us, and we're all dead in Adam, and we're all enveloped in Adam, so also... In Christ, God's love encompasses all of us. God's grace encompasses all of us. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. Now, people can still refuse that. They, they have their free will and can resist that. But from God's end, from God's vision, with God's heart, his, he's got a bear hug around everybody. He's, he's looking at all of humanity that's ever existed, and he's saying, mine, mine, in Christ you are mine. That's God's heart. He's not willing that any should perish. And that vision, that magnificent vision of this all-inclusive love, you find throughout the Bible. We often miss it because it doesn't square with our theology. We wear different lenses as we read the Scripture. But there's some breathtakingly beautiful inclusivity in, in, in the Bible. When God calls Abraham to start his Israel project, he says, through you all the nations and all the families of the world will be blessed. He wanted to use Israel to reach everybody. And you find that throughout the Bible. He, he's always saying, there's coming a day when all the nations will gather around Zion and worship me and, and will lay down their arms and, and, and be at peace and be reconciled to me. Some of the most beautiful passages of Scripture are when God, is when God does this, pronounces this vision, right in the midst of judging nations. We often miss this, but very frequently when God is lowering the boom on the nasty, wicked nations in the Old Testament... Even in the middle of that, he'll utter a word of mercy and kindness and hope. It's just beautiful the way he does it. I'll give you one example. One of the, Israel's worst enemies was Assyria. They were barbaric as all get out. Another enemy was Egypt. In the middle of a time when Assyria is attacking Israel, so you can understand why all the Jews would hate the Assyrians and want the Assyrians to go to hell. In the middle of that, the Lord says this in Isaiah 19. The, the Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. And here's where all the suffering Israelites want to go, yay! Ah, but he will strike them and heal them. In fact, the passage has the connotation of he'll strike them in order to heal them. For a God of love expressed on Calvary, striking is never the last word. It's never an end in and of itself. He strikes in order to heal. His heart is always for healing. They, the Egyptians, will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians will go to Assyria, no longer to make war, but because they consider themselves neighbors. In fact, he says the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The, the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, 
a blessing to the earth. These are the nasty, nasty enemies of God and enemies of Israel, but here God is pronouncing this beautiful bear hug vision of, uh, around Egypt and Assyria. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my artwork, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. What a beautiful, magnificent vision. This is the dream of God. Far from being stingy and, and scanty and a few, it's all encompassing. He's giving a bear hug around everyone, even those who are the worst enemies. And what a hope it should give us. Because the promise is really saying there's coming a day, folks, when there's coming a day when, when, when America and Iran are going to sit down together and they're going to they're, they're have a feast together and they're going to party together and they're going to love God together. And it's coming a time, praise God, when Israel and Palestine, they're going to sit down together, they're going to dance together, they're going to love God together. And the Bosnian and the Serbs... And Russia and Georgia and all of the conflict will cease and the world will be as God wanted the world to be. And there's this bear hug around all the nations. The former enemies of God are going to be friends of God and friends of one another. Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful, breathtaking vision. Not a little one. It's a wide vision. All-encompassing vision. Which then leads to the fourth consideration. As we're thinking about this issue... Many in the Bible, we've got to take this seriously, many in the Bible end up in the kingdom who don't consciously know Jesus. So, for example, the passage we just read um, uh, today says that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the Old Testament prophets are going to sit down at this feast. They're going to be part of the feast. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets, they didn't know Jesus. They never confessed him as their personal Lord and Savior. And they were just as much sinners as the rest of us, just as much in need of a Savior as the rest of us. It's just as true for them as it was of us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And no one, nobody, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, goes to the Father except through him. Which tells us that the work of Christ encompasses more people than know about Christ. They're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes... In the Old Testament, you find uh, even people outside of, of Israel are brought into the kingdom. People who really didn't, weren't walking according to the Torah, didn't really know Yahweh as God. Uh, Melchizedek, for example, and Jethro, uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law, and Job, and, and Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and others. They're listed as heroes of the faith. They didn't know Jesus. They weren't even Jews, but God saw something in their heart. They were light receivers. And so far as they had light, they responded to it. And so God saw that. God knows the heart of people, and he's the only one who does. And he, he, he judges people based on their heart response to whatever light they've received. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that the Gentiles who don't know the law, they're not judged according to the law that they don't know, but they've got their, a law written in their heart. And God judges them based on how they respond to the law in their heart, sometimes accusing them and sometimes excusing them. God knows the heart of people. As he loves all people and gives a bear hug around all people, he knows the heart of people. And no one's going to be lost by an accident. There's no one out there that Jesus died for who's going to be lost because the wrong person witnessed to them or they happen to be born at the wrong place at the wrong time. If there's a salvageable heart, you can trust that God's going to find a way to salvage it. Because he's the God who doesn't give up on anybody. And the final thing, the fifth thing, and the very important thing is this. And this brings us to kind of Jesus' response to the man who asked the question in the first place. Assurance of entering the kingdom at the end of the age is given only to those who are living in the kingdom now. Assurance of future salvation is given to those who are now being saved. 
yes, we can trust, we can know confidently that God is at work in every human heart. We can trust confidently that God will salvage everyone who's salvageable. We can, we can affirm confidently that, that we can have a hope for all because God's giving a bear hug around all. And we can leave all judgment to God. But at the same time, we've got to take very seriously that the, that the only people who have an assurance of being in the kingdom are those who are, in fact, in the kingdom, who are now living in the kingdom. The New Testament celebrates the death of Jesus' followers, but only the death of Jesus' followers. About everyone else, you, can, you have to say, I hope, but I don't know. And God wants us to have that assurance now. In fact, God wants, the, the emphasis of the New Testament is on having that assurance now. This is why, folks, there is an urgency to preaching the gospel. There's an urgency to spreading the good news. While we have this hope for all, the New Testament never encourages us to relax, just kick back, hey, God's working everywhere, God loves everybody, so no big deal. No, it's our privilege and our responsibility to share good news so that all now are in the kingdom of God so they can live in that insurance, uh, assurance now. In fact, that is the focus of the New Testament. It doesn't focus, it doesn't define salvation primarily as getting saved from hell. It defines it as living in the kingdom now, as, as, as experiencing the life of God and the wholeness of God and the joy of God and the freedom of God right here and right now. And God wants everyone to be a participant in that kingdom right here and right now. So the real question isn't, will I be saved? No, the question is, are you being saved? The, 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 the right question isn't, will I make it into the kingdom? Am I believing the right things? No. The question is, is, are you in the kingdom now? Are you manifesting the fruit of the kingdom now? Is your life being transformed by the life of God now? This is why Jesus turns the question back on the guy. I'm not going to go into this theoretical discussion of who is or who isn't saved. God will deal with that one. But he says to the guy, here's what you ought to be concerned with. Are you making every effort? Are you confronting every obstacle that could keep you from entering into the kingdom now? Are you living in this kingdom now? That's why Jesus gives these rather strong warnings in this passage that we have to take seriously because we take all the scriptures seriously. There's coming a time when the door will shut. And when that happens, it won't be good news for everybody. Uh, there'll be some on the outside. There's a feast going on. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets are there. People from the northeast, southwest, they're all coming there. The first are last, the last are first, they're there. And these folks see it happening and they long for it, but they can't get in. And then they make their case. And let's pay attention to what their case is. They plead their cause. They say, Lord, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. Isn't that good enough? What they're saying there is, Lord, what do you mean you don't know us? We know you. Uh, you threw that party a couple weeks ago for the tax collectors and the prostitutes. I was there. I ate with you. I drank with you. Huh? You taught in our streets. I heard you preach a sermon. It was a good sermon, by the way. I really like that one. You know, I, what do you mean I don't know you? I saw you deliver that woman of demons just a couple verses ago back in that synagogue. What do you mean I don't know you? I followed you around to 18 sermons. I, I, I did it with you a couple of times. It's a little bit like folks today who might say, what do you mean I don't know you? I've gone to church all my life. I was baptized. I'm a fourth-generation Christian. I got a lot of verses memorized. I've done a lot of good deeds. I even talk about theology once in a while. I'm a professor of theology. I teach classes on theology. What do you mean I don't know you? I'm a theologian who says 
theology, sanctification, open theism, predestination. <laughs> what do you mean I don't know you? But see, here's the thing, here's the thing. The passage is saying all of that is utterly, 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 utterly irrelevant. Except insofar as it helped you answer the one question that is relevant, and that is, do you know him? Do you know him? It's one thing to eat with Jesus. It's another thing to eat Jesus and to ingest him and internalize him. John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He's talking about internalizing him. It's one thing to hear Jesus, hear a sermon about Jesus. It's another thing to hear Jesus. Because Jesus always says, if you really hear these words, if they get on the inside, if you let them confront you, it will change who you are. It will change the way you think, change the way you do life, change the way you treat your enemies, change the way you do your finances. It changes everything. That's why Jesus was always hammering on the folks who heard but didn't hear. They heard but nothing changed. Why do you listen to what I say but you don't do what I say? No, to really hear means you act on it. That's what it is to know Jesus. So the question I leave us with, and it's a rather somber one, is do you know Jesus? You may go to church a lot. You may do a lot of religious deeds. But that's not what cuts it. It comes down to this. Have you, number one, turned from the world, the self-centered way of doing life, what Paul calls the pattern of the world or the flesh? That's called repentance, turning. Have you repented? Have you surrendered to him? To confess him as Lord means you surrender. Have you reoriented your life around him? Cultivating a relationship with him through prayer and fellowship and and, and patterning your life on a Jesus lifestyle. That's what it is to know him, is to walk in his ways. And have you joined yourself to the community of people who are being saved? The community of people who are helping one another do this, because we can't do it alone. God comes for a people, not a collection of individuals. Are you part of the body of Christ? Turning from the world, surrendering your life, reorientating your life around him, cultivating a relationship with him, and joining with the community of God. Do you know Jesus? Pray with me here for a moment. And I want to ask the prayer teams to come up as I do this. I want to encourage you to come forward for prayer if you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for. But I want you to come forward if you're going to respond to this question in a particular way. And the question is, have you just been doing church once in a while? Have you been maybe doing your Bible once in a while? But you know that you're in your inner being you're not surrendered. And I hope that this message maybe sheds some light, because Jesus is the light. Shed some light in your, in your life that maybe hasn't been shed before. Will you now surrender to him and pledge to live in a Jesus way? And I'm not going to look for hands right now or anything of the sort. You know, if, if you're serious about that, you, you know it, and just do it. But I encourage you to come up after this service and tell these folks that you did that. Because you can't do this alone and they want to pray with you to seal that, that commitment and now start to walk it out. Because a commitment is nothing unless it's walked out. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that as we're getting ready to leave here, Lord, you uh, just put on our hearts what needs to be put for us to leave here more kingdomized than we were when we came or more kingdomized than we were before we turned on the iPod. God, if there's any area of our life that's not surrendered, will you help us to, to surrender it and count the cost and pay the price? Wake us up, Lord God, to how it's deceptive to think that eating with you and drinking with you and hearing a sermon matters at all. 
It doesn't unless it's affecting change in our life. Lord, bring about that change. We can't do it through self-effort, Lord. We're asking you, Holy Spirit, to change us, to soften our heart, to surrender us, to go through the narrow door, to overcome every obstacle that would keep us from there, including Satan and all the obstacles he might put in our way, and free us to be your outrageously loving kingdom people who live life like you do, loving people like you do, embracing people like you do. As we leave here, Lord, I pray that we would have on our hearts a commitment to bless everybody with hope. Because you're, you're giving them a bear hug. Lord, encourage us to give them a bear hug. If only through the blessing that we say on them as we drive down the road, as we eat at the restaurant, for every stranger we confront, help us to bless them. Remind us to spread your kingdom, that beautiful kingdom, that outrageous kingdom that encompasses all people at all times and all places. By your love in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom. The altar is open.